Dean Bible Ministries presents the Bible teaching ministry of Dr. Robert Dean, pastor of West Houston Bible Church. These and other Bible lessons are available from www.deanbible.org. Now let's listen to our lesson from God's Word, the Bible. This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on Him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of God's Word this morning, let's go to the Lord and ask His guidance on our time together. Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Your Word, for You have revealed it to us in a specific way, designed that we can understand it, that we can study it, and that the more we study it, the more we come to understand You, and the more we come to understand uh, your plan of salvation, and the more we come to understand your plan for our own spiritual life and spiritual growth. Father, in this church age, we have God the Holy Spirit who indwells us and fills us. He is the one who teaches us, and he is the one who stores these things in our memory to use them, uh, to bring them back to our consciousness at times of application. And so, Father, we pray that as we study your word today that uh, these things would be driven by the Holy Spirit deep into our souls that we might, uh, you, they might be used by you to uh, mature us, to strengthen us, and to build us up in our faith that we might glorify you in all that we say and do. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. On Sunday morning, we have been in a study of... First Kings, we shifted the King study from Tuesday night to Sunday morning last week. And in our study of First Kings, we have come to the life and ministry of Elijah. Now, there are many things that we can learn from Elijah as we study him. One of the things that we see is how God works in the life of believers to train them, to equip them, and to prepare them for future ministry and future service. God has a training program for each one of you, just as he has had a training program for Elijah. And as we'll see in our study today, there are two things that are emphasized in that training program. Now, the means that he uses for the church-age believer, we've emphasized many times. That's the Spirit of God and the Word of God. But there are two things that are repetitively emphasized in the process of growth and training. And those two things are, number one, volition, and number two, thinking. And we will see those two things emphasized in our study today. 
But just to give you a brief review and to sort of help the visitors here understand why we're doing what we're doing, I want to remind you of some things we've learned about Elijah before we go to Philippians um, chapter 4. First of all, we saw that Elijah was sent by God to announce divine judgment upon Israel to the pagan king Ahab. Ahab was, at this point in the history of the northern kingdom of Israel, the most perverse, decadent, spiritually apostate king that Israel had had. He married Jezebel, the daughter of the high priest of Baal worship from uh, the area now known as Lebanon or Phoenicia, uh, Tyre, that area. And she brought with her uh, 400, uh, 450 priests of Baal and the priests of the Asherah, and they were on a hit mission to destroy the worship of Yahweh and to wipe it out in the northern kingdom. Because of this, God is going to bring discipline upon the nation based on what he had promised in the Mosaic Law. And this would include drought and the consequent economic disaster. And so Elijah announces this to Ahab that it will not rain again until he, until he says so. And this is going to bring the nation into an economic catastrophe, not unlike one that uh, we have the potential of facing in our world today. Things have gone from bad to worse, it seems, over the last 12 months. Who in, among us would have anticipated uh, where we would be today uh, 12 months ago? And yet we see that there have been uh, several occasions, I believe, from what I have read in the last six months, when we have stood on the precipice of a global meltdown in the economy. And we cannot envision how that would impact each of us. And there are many people in our world today who are just uh, scared to death because they don't know what might happen. And so they're willing to uh, trade security for freedom. And they are willing to uh, give up control to a government in order to try to purchase security. But as we learned this last week, the FDIC would would go bankrupt in another six or seven months if things continue the way they are, so there really isn't even security. There's just a sellout. So for believers, we have a tremendous opportunity to trust God and to demonstrate our stability in the midst of crisis in the same way that Elijah did in his generation. God then, after the announcement to Ahab, God protected Elijah. He protected and provided for Elijah by sending him into the remote desert and providing for his needs. He took care of him in the same way God will take care of us, no matter what the external circumstances might be. Elijah still had to go through the same tough times, the same drought, the same famine that everybody else went through, but God uh, miraculously, supernaturally took care of him. But God is a multitasker, and the third thing we've seen is that God's protection also involved advanced training for the prophet. God is going to use this not just to provide for uh, Elijah, but to train him, to teach him about God's protection, about his grace, so that Elijah will continue to grow and mature spiritually in preparation for his future 
challenge and confrontation with the prophets, uh, uh, the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. And then fourth, in the same way, we've seen that God protects every church-age believer and takes us through a training program, uh, training process to prepare us for future ministry in this life on earth as well as future ministry to, when we rule and reign with the Lord Jesus Christ in the future millennial kingdom and then on into eternity. So we began in 1 Kings 17 by looking at how God was training Elijah. And now we're taking it into the New Testament because I want to show you that God's methods and God's procedures are the same throughout the dispensations. There's not this huge disconnect in this particular area. And so as we observe this pattern from the Old Testament into the New Testament, it helps us to relax when we face the trials and the testing and the challenges that, that we encounter in life. Now, last time we began by looking at Philippians uh, chapter 4 because of some of the great promises that are contained there. These promises focus on our relaxed mental attitude, our ability to trust in God, not to cave in to fear and worry and anxiety, not to let these mental attitude sins uh, capture and control our soul. It gives us the positive instructions in this chapter of how we should uh, think and what we should think about as well as uh, the results of this. And uh, this chapter, Philippians chapter 4, is written uh, while Paul is in prison. He had two imprisonments later in life. This is the first of those two imprisonments. And it's written some 20 to 25 years after he was first saved. So he has gone through God's training program. He has matured by this point so that he can reflect upon these promises from his own, uh, own experience and relate that to the Philippian believers who are going through their own tests and their own adversity. We see that these patterns are similar throughout the Testaments, both Old and New Testament, and they focus on these two factors. First of all, volition. There is a challenge to walk by the Holy Spirit day by day, moment by moment. And each test calls upon us to exercise that volitional capacity to decide once again whether to apply God's Word and walk by the Spirit or to try to handle the situation in our own self-sufficiency. So volition is always a challenge. Second thing that we see in all of these tests is right thinking. By right thinking, I mean thinking that conforms to the Word of God. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, we're not to be conformed to the thinking of the world, but to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, by the renewing of our thinking. We see this pattern all the way through Scripture. Just think about it. As, as we studied so many of these things in the past, going back to the book of Genesis, we saw that as the writer of Genesis describes the life of Abraham from Genesis 12 to Genesis 22, that the writer reveals or shows that God took Abraham through 12 different tests, 
12 different tests, and these tests were all related to the revelation that God had given him in the Abrahamic covenant related to the promise of land, seed, and blessing. Some of these tests he passed, some of these tests he failed, but through that progress through his life, we see his growth and maturity. Later in Genesis, we see how God took Joseph through various uh, tests from the rejection and hostility of his brothers who eventually sold him into slavery to his being falsely accused and imprisoned in Egypt. He was falsely accused by Potiphar's wife and then imprisoned for, uh, for, for attempted rape. And then while in prison, he is promised by uh, the Pharaoh's cupbearer that he will uh, say a good word, a kind word about Joseph to get him out of prison, and he is forgotten, so he has to languish a bit longer forgotten in prison. We can think about how God took Moses to the backside of the desert for 40 years to teach and to train Moses and to prepare him in terms of God's training. He already had the Egyptian training, but now God had to teach him what divine viewpoint training was all about before he would be prepared to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. We think about David's training program when God trains him when he's out with the sheep and then subsequently when he, after his fame from defeating Goliath and he is in uh, Saul's court and then Saul becomes so jealous and is constantly attacking and persecuting uh, David. And through that period of time, David had to trust in the Lord. And we learn about this as we read through the Psalms. And then we think about Daniel later on as Daniel is a believer. He's trained by his parents in the home. But as a young man, when he's 13 or 14 years of age, uh, he is taken captive by the Babylonians back to Babylon. And he and many others of the young men, the young aristocrats, of Judea are taken, and they are going to be retrained, reprogrammed, uh, re-educated according to the pagan standards of the Babylonians. And so these young men faced a test as to how they would handle uh, this reprogramming from the Babylonians, and they were going to have to decide whether they would be uh, committed to following the Mosaic Law in all aspects or whether they were going to compromise and assimilate into Babylonian culture. And we're reminded of how these uh, young men withstood the challenge of the diet in chapter 1, the challenge of idolatry in chapter 2, even though it might have cost their life in the fiery furnace. And on through Daniel, we see how God works in the lives of of each believer to train them and prepare them. And it all focuses on taking us through times of adversity, times of crisis, times of disaster, where the only thing that we can hold on to is the character of God and the promises of God. And we see in those times tremendous spiritual growth. We don't like it. It's not fun. We don't wrap our arms around it and embrace it. But we know that there is no path to maturity apart from it. Even our Lord Jesus Christ was perfected or matured, the writer of Hebrews says, by the things which he suffered. And if the Lord Jesus Christ in his perfect humanity had to be matured through this, this process, then that goes even, even more uh, for each one of us. So as we come to this passage in Philippians chapter 4, we see this emphasis, and I want to just look at this as, as sort of a, an overview 
uh, of Philippians 4, 4 through 20. We talked about the first part of it, 4 through 9, uh, last time, or 4 through 8 last time, actually, and we will finish the rest of it next time. But I want to see, I want us to see how Paul could get here. Because this is later in his life when he is writing to the Philippians. How did he get to this point? What was God's training of Paul to get him to this point? Now, as we look at Philippians 4, I want to point out three things just in terms of general observation of the passage. First of all, there are seven imperative verbs in this section. The imperatives are addressed to our volition. They are mandates for us, and we can choose to obey or we can choose to disobey. That's the nature of an imperative. And so that addresses our volition. And in these seven imperatives, uh, the Philippians and we are told to rejoice. That command is twice in verse 4. We're commanded to let our gentle attitude be known. Now, gentle is not a good translation of that word. We'll look at it and a little more detail later on, but it has more of the idea of objective thinking and not asserting yourself uh, wrongly over somebody else. Uh, it's not this idea of sort of a uh, mild-mannered, uh, soft uh, gent- gentleness that we, uh, we associate with that English word gentle. Uh, we're not to worry, verse 6. We are to let our requests be made known to God, verse 6. We are to think on certain things, think a certain way in verse 8. And we are to practice these things in verse 9. These are the seven imperatives that are addressed to our volition in Philippians chapter 4. And then Paul talks about the results that he has seen in his own life and experience in his own spiritual life and that the and these results will be also seen by the Philippians as well as any believer who uh, puts into practice these imperatives. First of all, there will be a peace of God that will guard or protect or defend our soul. It is God who is our our fortress. So verse seven, the peace of God protects our soul. Verse nine, he says, the God of peace will be with us. So there is a special promise there of an additional presence of God as we apply these things. And third, that he says that he is able to do all things. In previous, in verse, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And the previous verse to that, verse 12, he outlines it. He talks about how he's had uh, times in his life when he's had nothing and times in his life when he has had an abundance. He had had times in his life when he has been uh, imprisoned and beaten and tortured, and he's had times in his life when he has had tremendous comfort. But he concludes by saying that what gives him the capacity to handle any and every situation is the Word of God and what he has in Jesus Christ so that he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. And then this is related in, uh, in these verses to thinking. So these first section dealt with volition, the imperatives that by following them we bring about, we see certain results, and then the kind of thinking that should characterize the life of the believer. The believer's life is a life based on thought, thinking the right things. And the right things are defined in terms of what the Word of God teaches. 
And again and again we see through the Bible and the New Testament that we are to think a certain way. Uh, again, Romans 12.2 says we're not to be pressed into the mold of the world's way of thinking, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our emotions, right? Just wanted to see if y'all were, y'all were awake. Be transformed by our feelings, right? No, by our, our thinking is transformed. Uh, our minds are transformed, the content of our thinking, so it affects how we respond, react to, to life situations and, and what we do. And so there's a complete overhaul. There is a worldview shift that is dramatic as we no longer think like the world, but we learn to think as God thinks. And so there are uh, ten words that are used in this section that emphasize thinking. The word gentle really comes out of a background that had to do with objective and relaxed thinking, not a trying to control uh, people around them, but to be relaxed. So it ultimately goes to a relaxed mental attitude. In verse 7, the hearts and minds, two different words, that our hearts and minds are guarded. And these words are often used synonymously, but they refer to our soul and the thinking part of our soul. Uh, in verse 9, Paul says we're to think on these things. The New American Standard says dwell on these things. Dwell, to me, uh, connotes living somewhere uh, where I dwell. Uh, I think that's a poor translation. The Greek word here is logizomai, which emphasizes reasoning and thought. You can hear the English word logic in the Greek word logizomai. That's where we get it. It's used of uh, imputation in some places, and other places it's used of reasoning and thinking. Other translations use terms such as meditate or concentrate, which are better uh, translations, but it emphasizes thought. Two times, and with two different words that are both translated learned, uh, Paul emphasizes the importance of learning something, learning the word and applying it. Being concerned, he he praises them because they were concerned. They were thoughtful, literally, uh, in the the Greek. Uh, Twice he uses uh, the word for knowing in verse 12 and verse, verse 15. So there is this emphasis on thought and thinking. And then there is uh, one command related to uh, uh, discipline. One command related to discipline, and that is in verse 9, to practice these things. Discipline. Discipline is at the core of any successful endeavor in life. Whatever you're learning, whether it's athletics or whether it's uh, academics, whether it has to do with uh, uh, being successful with the way you handle finances and money. All of this entails discipline. And when we are living in the midst of the devil's world and we face crises and catastrophes, what should mark the difference in a believer and an unbeliever is that the believer is mentally disciplined in terms of his Focus on the Word of God. And so after uh, Paul states the, uh, the characteristics of the content of the believer's thought in verse 9, 
he says, and after he says, think on these things, he says, what you've seen in me, what I've done, what I've taught you, you are to practice these things. And only perfect practice makes perfect. Imperfect practice just continues to reinforce all of those wrong habit patterns and thought patterns. So we have to learn uh, consistently practice, which means we have to go through these training exercises that God brings into our life again and again and again and again so that the right way of response, the right way of thinking is drilled into us so that we can then in turn uh, practice that uh, consistently. So how did this happen with the Apostle Paul? I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9. And in Acts chapter 9, we see the circumstances surrounding uh, Paul's conversion, Paul's salvation. The Apostle Paul was born to a very observant Jewish family in uh, the rather large city of Tarsus. Tarsus was in the uh, province of Cilicia in south Eastern Turkey. I have it circled. That's the upper red circle in the map. It was a an affluent town. There was a university there, a medical school there. This is where where Paul grew up in a rather uh, wealthy, well-to-do Jewish family. When he was around the age of thirteen, he was sent to Jerusalem to enter into uh, rabbinical training. According to uh, Arnold Fruchtenbaum's work, there are indications that the Apostle Paul was one of the most brilliant rabbinical students uh, to ever come to Jerusalem. And if he had not become a Christian, if he had not become a believer, uh, there are indications, according to Arnold, that he would have been perhaps the greatest rabbi of all times. But God had a different plan. Uh, Saul, we're told in, in Acts, was fanatically devoted to Pharisaism. He was so, in, so fanatically devoted to Pharisaism that he was intensely opposed to this new sect that believed that Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. And he was involved in persecuting hundreds of these new Christians. He, was, he had organized forces that he was in control of to seek out and to find these believers so that they could be arrested, imprisoned, and many of them uh, killed. Uh, we're told in Acts chapter 9 that he was uh, given authorization by the leaders in uh, Jerusalem to continue this persecution outside of the area of Judea and Samaria and Galilee and to go to Damascus. So he had letters with him to go to Damascus. And here we have on the map, Damascus is in this lower red circle. Uh, Jerusalem is down here just uh, to the south of Damascus. And the distance uh, from uh, Jerusalem to Damascus is, uh, is something less than 200 miles. It really isn't all that, that far. And so he was going to go there to seek out uh, those who were Christians and to bring them back to Jerusalem in chains. He was to bring them back bound where they would then be, uh, where they would then be uh, either imprisoned or 
uh, possibly murdered. The text tells us that he was still breathing uh, threats of murder uh, against them. And so on his way to uh, act, on his way to Damascus, something happened that transformed his life, and that is that the Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected, glorified, already ascended Lord Jesus Christ, now appeared to him in a, a flash of brilliant glory that was so bright that it blinded, um, blinded Paul. And Jesus says in Acts 9, verse 5, uh, when Paul said, Who are you, Lord? Jesus said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told what you must do. And verse 7 tells us about those who were traveling with him, his entourage uh, that would help him bring back these, these prisoners. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. Now, they didn't understand what the voice said, but they heard it. Now, that's important because if you go to a, a liberal church that doesn't believe in the inerrancy and fallibility of Scripture, or you go to just about any, any university in the land where you're learning about religions or you're learning about, um, uh, you're, you're learning about Western civilization, I know this is what I was taught years ago in, in university, is that this was purely a subjective thing. Paul was just... You know, he was just wired differently psychologically, and he was so obsessed about all these Christians that he just had this this trance and went into the, uh, some sort of epileptic fit or something and thought he saw Jesus. But see, what this verse tells us is there's an objective reality here. This isn't something that just happens inside Paul's head, for those with him heard and saw something. Now, because it wasn't directed to them, they didn't have specifics, but they knew that there was something objective that happened. So the Lord gives Paul instructions, and Paul got up, and his, uh, he's blinded now by the light, and so they have to lead him into Damascus. And in verse 9, we're told that he was there three days without sight, and he neither ate nor drank. And yet the Lord still con continued to communicate with him. And the Lord gave him a vision while he, when he first got into Damascus that a man named Ananias would come and would heal him and would restore uh, the sight uh, for him. And so he, God doesn't leave Saul of Tarsus, now later Paul, in a state of high anxiety, but uh, comforts him at that time by telling him what is going to happen. So God is beginning that training process. He's giving orders to Saul. Saul has to learn authority orientation. He has to use his volition to respond to God's command and to wait for someone to come and to heal him. And so God is beginning to teach and to train Saul uh, from the very beginning. And then we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 10, that there was a certain uh, disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him the Lord said in a vision, Ananias, and Ananias said, Here I am, Lord. So Ananias has his training program. And his training program at this point is going to intersect with Saul's training program. And this is a real test for Ananias. 
uh, because the Lord is going to say to him in verse 11, Arise and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas, for one called Saul of Tar- Tarsus, for behold, he is praying. And in a vision he has seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him so that he might receive sight. Now, Ananias has to decide if he's going to obey the Lord and trust the Lord or not. This would be comparable to a modern era Jew, let's say from the 60s or the 50s, being commanded by God to go and uh, take care of Adolf Eichmann, that he's had a change of heart and now you are to help him. That is an appropriate analogy because Paul was at the head of these attack forces that were that were killing and arresting believers. And now this believer said, now you're going to go and you're going to heal him. And I imagine in his flesh he was tempted to think, well, let's just leave him blind for a while. <laughs> you know, let him suffer. Look at all the misery he's brought into so many people's lives. And yet... Ananias trusts the Lord. His The Lord's commands are more real to him than his own emotions, his own feelings, his own circumstances. But he's got to question the Lord a little bit, which he does in 13. and says, well, wait a minute, Lord. Isn't this the same guy who's been persecuting so many of the saints uh, in, in Jerusalem? And the Lord said to him down in verse 15, Go, for he is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. Just a side point here. So many people talk about Paul being an apostle to the Gentiles as if it was wrong for him to give the gospel to the Jews. But right here, the Lord said, he's to bear my name before Gentiles, kings and the children of Israel. So that is, it was not out of line for Paul to go to the Jew first and then to the uh, Gentile. Well, Ananias goes and he uh, heals Saul And then for the next three years or so, Saul stays in the area around Damascus. During this time, he spent a good bit of time out in the desert in Arabia where he was rethinking all of his theology. And at that time, he then goes down to Jerusalem. So that is left out of a lot of this section in uh, Acts chapter 9, we're told about Paul uh, preaching Christ in the synagogues, verse 20, that he is the Son of God, and how many responded to his, uh, his ministry. They plotted to kill him, and he had to escape. Uh, he was lowered down by a basket over the wall. He had to escape from Damascus, and he went down to Jerusalem. But it is during this time that he is uh, starting to be starting to be trained. So he goes down to Jerusalem, and there he's introduced. They're a little bit skeptical about him because of his past record of persecuting them. And Barnabas comes along in verse 27 and uh, uh, says that Paul has been uh, converted and is now a believer and that they can trust him. But Paul was a young, still a young believer. We see his immaturity. He's enthusiastic He's over-enthusiastic, and one of the most amusing little verses that I found uh, comes up uh, after this, at the end of this section. In verse 29, we're told that Paul's in Jerusalem, and he's talking, and he's arguing with the Hellenistic Jews. So he's really stirring the pot in Jerusalem, and they're attempting to put him to death. And when the brethren learned about this, they took him down to Caesarea, down to the... Uh, 
down to Caesarea, sent him away to Tarsus. And then we read in verse 31. So the church throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria enjoyed peace. Saul had to go into another phase of his training program, and so he goes back to Tarsus. He goes back to Tarsus where he is in obscurity, just as Moses was trained in obscurity, Elijah's trained in obscurity, Saul was trained uh, in obscurity, and we just get little glimpses of things that happen there. And one of the things that's happened there is recorded in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Chapter 11. So turn with me to the Second uh, Corinthians chapter 11. Now, in Paul's life, he had to face a lot of adversity. That's part of his training process. And he lists some of this adversity at the end of chapter 11. Uh, he, in this section, he's really dealing with these um, false apostles who are claiming that they're true apostles and those that have rejected his ministry in Corinth, and so he's giving some of his qualifications, and he's going back over his own life history and how uh, how he had gone through all of this adversity, and God had provided for him and taken care of him. And so we just read some of these in verses 23 and following, where he says, uh, are, "Are they ministers of Christ?" Of course, the idea is no, they're not. Uh, I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant in stripes. That means in getting whipped uh, with the flagellum, the uh, terrible instrument of Roman punishment where they wove bits of rock and glass into the strips of leather and then beat the uh, person on the, on the back, stripping the flesh from the bones. In stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently. See, we don't read about all this. He doesn't say just once. In prisons more frequently. This is uh, before he goes to, uh, he's in prison in Caesarea, before he goes to Rome, so he's jailed many times apparently. In deaths often his life was threatened. Uh, from the Jews it says, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. The reason is that, that the Mosaic law prohibited giving more than 40, so the rabbi said, well, let's, let's never give more than 39 in case we miscount. That way we won't uh, violate the law. Uh, he says in verse 25, Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked a night and a day I have been in the deep. In journeys often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils of the Gentiles, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in weariness and toil, sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness, besides the other things that come upon me daily. You know, besides just the normal stresses and strains of life and ministry, you know, all of these things are in addition uh, to that. So he uh, describes all of those circumstances. And then he goes back to the beginning. And in verse 32, he talks about in Damascus, what happened when he was threatened there that they had to uh, lower him over the wall through a window because his very life was threatened. Now, that's his early training. So he's taking us back to that early training. And then we come to chapter 12, which is uh, one of, uh, I think, one of the most significant events and uh, chapters for learning the Christian life. And he talks about what happened to himself 14 years earlier. Well, this is about... 54, 55 A.D. on his uh, when he's writing this on his uh, third missionary journey, 
And so this happened 14 years earlier. This puts it around 41 or 42. This would be in the time frame when he's back in Tarsus in obscurity. And he tells us there in verse 2, he says, I know a man in Christ, he's referring to himself in an obscure third person, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I don't know, whether out of the body I don't know, God knows such a one was caught up to the third heaven. And well, he's caught up to the third heaven in verse 4 that he is given special revelation. So he has knowledge. He's given this information nobody else has. Now, this could really make somebody very, very proud, very arrogant. Look at what I know. God has revealed aspects of his plan and purposes in the church age to me that nobody else knows. No one. Not only that, but I'm pretty smart. I was, a, I was the valedictorian of my rabbinical class. You know, I was the sharpest one. So Paul could easily have been led into er, intellectual arrogance and arrogance over what, um, what God had revealed to him. And so God, though, is going to give him a little training and a little testing in order to keep him from giving in to arrogance. And so in verse 7 we read, because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan. See, that word is angelos there. It's translated messenger. That's the Greek word for angel. So it's not just a, it's not a human messenger. It's not some physical disease, which is what a lot of people suggest here. It is a demon, an angel of Satan, a fallen angel. So a fallen angel is given permission to stir up, I believe, trouble, hostility, adversity against Paul. Now, nothing's harder on somebody who's really talented and really capable and has and has all the right answers and knows he has the right answers, and Paul actually did, than to always face opposition and people saying, you're crazy, you're nuts, you're wrong. I mean, that's just, that, that gets pretty rugged after a while because you know you know. And you know you're right. And you've been to heaven and God told you. And you're not crazy. So God is going to make sure he's going to teach him where the real source of his strength is, and it's not in what God has given him. And so there's this thorn in the flesh, and the word thorn is just used here metaphorically, but it's, it's a, a, the Greek word is scallops. This was a, a, a painful thorn. It could refer to a stake, a wooden stake, or it could refer to any kind of a uh, thorn. They have these wonderful trees in Israel, ran across uh, this particular tree in um, outside the Colosseum at Beit Shan, and just look at the, I mean, the whole tree is covered with those lovely, lovely thorns. Isn't that great? So this is what Paul's talking about. He's got a thorn, uh, thorn in the flesh. This is something that's constantly aggravating him, a constant irritation. And so in verse 8, he says, concerning this, I implored the Lord three times that it might leave me. So he appeals to God. This is a word for prayer. There's nothing wrong with praying, with Paul praying to God here. He doesn't know what the answer is going to be. Prayer is how we implement the faith rest drill many times. We go to the Lord in prayer and appeal. So he appeals to the Lord to solve the problem that it might 
leave him. The Greek word there, aphistemi, meaning to go away, to be wiped out, and to no longer come back. But God's answer to the prayer is in verse 9. My grace is sufficient for you. The only way we learn that God can really take care of us in tough times is to go through the tough times, to face that adversity on the, with our feet grounded on the Word of God, standing on the promises of God's Word and applying them in the midst of that tough time. So Paul says that God's answer was, my grace is sufficient. It is more than enough. It will take care of any situation. My grace is sufficient for you, for power is perfected. And that word is, is uh, teleos, indicating mature, teleo, indicating maturity. My power is perfected in weakness. So this is how God trained Paul, and he trains us, taking us through these difficult times. And Second Corinthians 9, 8, earlier Paul said, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you always having all sufficiency in all things may have abundance for every good work. God isn't just parsimoniously handing out a little here and a little there. He gives us everything we need in the Word of God and the Spirit of God to handle anything we face in life. So no matter what you encounter, no matter how horrible it may be, no matter how threatening it may be, no matter what you come up with in your own mind as to, as to how this can destroy your life, focus on the Word. Focus on the promises of God because God is in control of every circumstance in our life and He can sustain us in any and every situation. So 2 Corinthians 12.9 is our watchword, my grace is sufficient for you and my strength is made perfect in weakness. Second Peter 1.3 says that God's power, his omnipotence, has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge. See, there's a thought word again. Through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. And the result of facing these, this adversity with the promises of God is stated by Paul in his conclusion in 12.10. Therefore, I am well content with weaknesses, with insults, with distresses, with persecutions, with difficulties. See, that, this is the thorn in the flesh. The weaknesses that he has, the insults, the distresses, the persecutions, the difficulties for Christ's sake, for when I am weak then I am strong. So God's training program focuses on volition and thinking. Now, if you're not a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, these two things apply to you in terms of eternal life. In terms of volition, the command is to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's your decision to trust in Christ or not to trust in Christ. And so in terms of thinking, the issue is, what think ye of Christ? What do you think about Jesus Christ? Is he just a good teacher? He can't be a good teacher if he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man can come to the Father except by me. If he's not the only way, then he's a liar. So he can't be just a good teacher. If he's just a nice religious uh, innovator, 
You can't get away with that either because of the claims that Jesus made that he is the only, only way. He is the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, he said, will never die. That's either true or false. If it's false, then Jesus is a horrible person. If it's true, then we must believe in him. And when we believe in him, we have new life. We have to grow. We have to be matured. And he has a plan for us to train us for ministry today and in the future, just like he trained Elijah as well as Moses, Daniel, and everyone else that is a believer. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, this opportunity to be challenged with uh, the way you work in each of our lives to train us, that all of us as believers are being trained. Whether we want to or not, your goal is to make us like Jesus Christ, to conform us to his image, and whether we, whether we are willing to uh, submit to your plan or whether we are resistant, you will still continue to work in our lives to produce that maturity. So, Father, we're challenged from our study today to exercise our volition positively to respond to what you are doing in our lives, to trust your word, and to learn your word that we may think accurate thoughts and apply that to the circumstances and situations that we face. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning who is uncertain of their eternal life or unsure of their eternal destiny, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Scripture says, if you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. God the Father is the one who secures that salvation, and he is all-powerful so he can bring that about. At this instant, at the moment you understand that Christ died for you and believe it, trust in him alone, at that instant you are saved. God the Father imputes to you perfect righteousness, declares you justified, you're born again, and given a new life that can never be taken from you. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied today. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.